Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. just past noon. Eric says his partner walked into his room, shot him twice while he was laying in bed, stole $1,500 cash, and left him for dead. She was like, I apologize. It's 911. What's the emergency? I said, I got shot. She said, that's not an emergency. and hung up herself. And that's what happened with that situation. So I called my mom, and she was there just like that. Yeah. Yeah. She was here in five minutes, faster than EMT would even got here. Context of white supremacy. Justice and Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy, 
Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the program. Today's date, Monday, April 30th, 2012. So I have been told uh, we will be back uh, tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson will be returning to the program. Hasn't been with us since October. Uh, his final words uh, when he spoke with us, socially fabricated disorder. Excuse me, fabricated social disorder. I did that yesterday. Fabricated social Disorder. Those were his final words when he spoke to us about what he thought might be on the horizon. Man, it will be phenomenal to get the follow up. Uh, he'll be with us tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. That'll actually be program 601. This being broadcast number 600. Um, don't get into the celebrations and all that. The end goal is replace white supremacy with justice, not to uh, celebrate and have a party because you've been able to do so many programs. But 600, 600. Uh, our broadcast, we began sound clip Public Enemy from their album Fear of a Black Planet, heavily influenced by a black physician, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, general and child psychiatrist. The song 911 is a joke. Uh, in reading the book from our guest for today's broadcast, uh, it reminded me, I'll give you the exact moment <laughs> when I was reading the book, and it reminded me of that song. This is from page 110. Uh, the author, she writes, in Winston-Salem, emergency medical services were often distributed on a racial basis rather than on a basis of need. Sick or injured persons requiring medical transportation were allegedly vetted by callous ambulance dispatchers who were instructed by their supervisors not to send assistance to poor blacks who might be unable to pay. If callers could not prove that they were ill to a dispatcher's satisfaction or that they had the resources to pay for the service, they were denied transport to the hospital. In instances in which county ambulance service was dispatched, it might arrive late or medics might refuse to transport a person in need of care to the hospital. An occasion in which this medical discrimination proved fatal was the death of a black teenager from a gunshot wound. The municipal ambulance service took 30 minutes to arrive on the scene and then refused to provide treatment or transport to the emergency room. The youth later died. Black Panther Larry Little complained that we had people who died because these ambulance employees who were county employees determined these people were not in an emergency situation. Not only did it remind me of the song Public Enemies work, it reminded me of that news clip uh, that happened in the Detroit area just in the past few months, not 30 years ago, not 50 years ago, just in the past few months. That's why I say keep it focused on the end goal, not momentary celebrations. There is a greater objective. Uh, our guest, she really has um, an incredibly impressive resume. Um, I will share a little bit so you all will have an idea of who is visiting with us. Uh, she teaches sociology 
and Gender Studies at Columbia University. Uh, she was previously on the faculty of Yale University, where she received the Poor Vu Family Award for Teaching Excellence. Uh, she received her B.A. magna cum laude from the University of California, where she was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. She earned her Ph.D. from New York University in 2003. Uh, her, an interdisciplinary social scientist, our guest, she writes about the intersections of science, technology, medicine, and inequality. These, te these themes are taken up in the book that we're going to discuss today, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party, and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Uh, our guest, she is also the editor of Genetics and the Unsettled Past. The Collision of DNA, Race, and History. We're also, hopefully, before the end of the broadcast, we'll get information on uh, one of her newer projects, Reconciliation Projects, Race, Politics, and the Social Life of DNA. Uh, real pleasure to have her on the program, and I will encourage anyone who's listening to the broadcast, check out her website. You can get lots of info, updates on what she's going to be doing, more information about her publications, and uh, just to support her efforts, the website is alondranelson.com, just the way it sounds, alondranelson.com. It is in the chat room. Uh, real pleasure to have her on the broadcast and uh, looking forward to hearing from her. Joining us live, Dr. Alondra Nelson. Uh, Dr. Nelson, are you with us? I'm here, I'm here, Gus. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We really appreciate you uh, sharing some time out of your busy schedule to uh, discuss your work. Um, real privilege to have you on the program. Um, I guess just for listeners who maybe they haven't read your book, may be the first time that they've heard from you. Could you give a little background information just so folks know a little bit more about who you are and the work you do? Sure. So in general, as you said, I, I work on um, African-American, African-descended communities and their engagements with, their resistance to, sometimes their use of um, science and technology and medicine. Um, and in this project in particular, I was interested in thinking about or looking at uh, how black communities, poor black communities in particular, had responded to the lack of health care access. Um, and so it turned me, brought me to, and I was particularly thinking, uh, working on the 1980s, but, you know, often when we're asking questions about the present, it brings us back to the past, and I ended up in the late 1960s and 70s. Um, uh, in, in the decade of the 60s and 70s, thinking about the Black Panther Party's work. And um, the more I sort of looked around, the more I was both surprised and inspired by the range of activities that they were engaged in with regards to trying to ensure the well-being of uh, poor black communities. Right on. We will get into that. That word just inspired, I think, um as we get into it, I think a lot of people will feel that way because uh, I think a lot of this material is not as publicized as the guns and the rhetoric. And I think what people people's first thought tends to be when they think of the Black Panther Party. Um, before we get to that, you are a black uh, black female, just for folks who haven't seen you. Is that correct? Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. 
Right on. You can see her picture on her website, alondranelson.com. Yes, you can. <laughs> um, this broadcast, uh, context of white supremacy, uh, I have unfortunately concluded that we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy. I use those two terms as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. And the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, Do you believe that such a system exists and do you think that's an accurate definition? Um, sure. I mean, obviously, there, there there's white supremacy. There's been historical white supremacy, and that its legacies are present with us today. But I think, um, you know, where I, I might differ somewhat from that definition is that, uh, you know, I think things get quite complicated when we have, um, you know, a African-descended president who doesn't identify himself as white. Um, and who is understood to be non-white by most people. And, you know, living in here in New York City, we have, um, there's been cases of police violence. I'm thinking of the Sean Bell tragedy in particular, where he was, um, this young man of color was um, murdered on the eve of his wedding by, you know, officers that were identified by, you know, probably self-identified and identified from uh, from others as both white and non-white. And, um and so, you know, I think that uh, I would want I want to understand um, white supremacy as being more systemic, and sometimes including people who identify as white being engaged in, uh, you know, a campaign against people who are either identified, you know, from inside or out from from the, without as being non-white. But sometimes it's more complicated than that. So, and more systemic, and and not about. Um, you know, individual actions, um, even in aggregate. You know, it's about, as a sociologist for me, it's about institutions as well. Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. As a sociologist, well-trained sociologist, um, I've concluded, and the reason the definition is phrased in the way that it is, uh, I've concluded that systems ultimately are people. Um, people I, when I frequently, when I hear people discuss systemic racism or institutional racism, uh, and they end up talking about laws or statutes or just a legacy with regards to the way things have been done or are being done that perpetuate, uh, they'll say racial inequalities. I would say racism, white supremacy. And I've concluded at the end of the day, whether it's laws, statutes, habit, at the end of the day, it has to be people ultimately that are doing things for those laws, statutes to have meaning and to really impact anyone. Does that make sense? Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean people institutions are are made by human beings, so absolutely, yeah. But I think that, that but the, that the definition that you offer doesn't explain to us um you know, the like the Sean Bell case, you know, it just simply doesn't. I mean, uh and I think that that case is an example of of white supremacy, frankly. Um, so I think that we just need a, you know, a definition that's um, that's not so dependent on, um, uh, you know, 
you know, uh, you know, people identified as white doing things against people identified as non-white. Do you have uh, a definition for racism, white supremacy? Do you have one that you use? Um, I mean, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, for me, racism is, um, uh, you know, it's based on, and I use racism and white supremacy interchangeably often in the classroom. You know, these are, it's a system of, of domination and oppression and inequality that's based on attributes, you know, that are, um, that's often justified, rather, and sometimes based on attributes of, you know, non-white groups versus white groups, and that's sort of often mobilized and justified through, you know, the way that science, ideas from science and medicine, um, you know, are sort of twisted to make claims about um, white groups and non-white groups. But I understand, you know, the ability to be able to make that, what, you know, these sort of distinctions that people um, make often um, incorrectly between groups of people um, requires, you know, systems of power and whether, you know, and these systems of power are, you know, mobilized by people and institutions are, are you know, of course, um, constituted by people. But, um, but I think that some institutions have more power than other institutions and that there's, there's a kind of institutional force or torque um, that makes racism go that works in concert with individual actions but is but not you know that I think the individual actions um, alone um, are not for me racism hmm. okay okay grooving appreciate you taking time to explain um, right on I'm sorry did I cut you off no you didn't cut me off at all I just you know I mean I think we have you know, there's uh, that's anyway. That's the working definition I use in the classroom. Okay, groovy. I don't want to get bogged down. I know listeners they were uh, looking forward to hearing about a uh, fantastic book, Body and Soul: The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Um, can you tell us, uh, for folks who who haven't read the book before, what was your purpose in writing this book and kind of uh, a synopsis of what it's all about? Sure. I think one purpose is, you know, that the, the, the narrative that we tend to have in the mainstream media and in mainstream scholarship about the Black Panther Party is, you know, as you were saying in your, in your introduction about guns and militant rhetoric and not really, you know, an appreciation of, for the substance of the work that the party was trying to do. Um, so, you know, one goal was to, to really fill out that story and actually, you know, correct the historical record. Another goal was to offer a compliment to, um, or, you know, a, or sort of not a counter-argument, I think a compliment is the better word, to stories that are familiar to your listeners about um, what the, uh, uh, the science journalist and researcher Harriet Washington has called medical apartheid, which for her is a 300-year at least trajectory of um, medical experimentation and scientific racism and you know, kind of biomedical oppression being used to dominate um, black communities, uh, and she's writing in particular mostly about the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, as a scholar, as someone who was interested in the black protest tradition and the black freedom tradition and the modern civil rights movement, it just didn't quite, you know, make sense to me that um, knowing what we know about that history, that we could have you know, such a long legacy of medical apartheid without any reaction or resistance 
um, contestation or challenge to it. And so part of what, you know, Body and Soul, my story about the Black Panther Party as health activist offers on the one hand is just, I think, you know, historical documentation about what the party did. It really, and I, you know, attempt to get beyond uh, the sort of culture wars battle about whether or not the party was good or bad and really to just give them their full due, you know, to, to really give their full due for the, the sort of breadth of what they were doing. But on the other hand, I want to understand, or at the same time, I want to understand the party's work and what I want to call a long history of, um, you know, we might call the, the long medical civil rights movement, which is this long history of African-American communities um, really being engaged in debates, conversations, challenges to the way in which ideas about race were constructed in scientific medicine and then often applied in discriminatory ways in medical practice. And so the book uh, covers, um, you know, like, you know, one argument of the book is that we need to think about, you know, black health activism as having um, a kind of dual focus. So we often, in the uh, we, health activism, we typically think about being about getting access to healthcare resources or to medicine that's too expensive or that, you know, getting access to clinical trials and these sorts of things. And there's certainly a large part of the Black Panther health activism, as I write about it, that was about getting access to resources. So the National Network of Their People's Free Medical Clinics that I write about was precisely about getting, you know, poor black communities in the local settings access to basic health care and then being able to also refer folks in these communities to health care if they needed, you know, care that was more kind of complicated um, than what could be offered and these often quite rudimentary but very important um, clinics. But at the same time, given the history of scientific racism, um, the Black Panthers were often also involved in the work of protecting black communities from medicine, from biomedical research, when the goal of this research um, in this quote-unquote medicine was to actually do harm to black communities. So when it was to make, you know, uh, racist claims, um, unsubstantiated racist claims about black bodies, about the inferiority of black bodies, when it was out to um, use black and brown bodies, often black and brown male bodies, for um, forms of risky experimental research and these sorts of things. So this dual what the Black Panther Party offers to us um, in thinking about the larger history of black resistance to medical discrimination is this dual focus, a, a focus on both providing services to communities who were underserved and protecting these same communities from medical miscare or medical mistreatment or medical abuse. Mm. Can you kind of share with our listeners, because uh, I thought this was great info before you even get to the Black Panther Party uh, in Body and Soul, you share uh, how, just what you said, Harriet Washington, her book Medical Apartheid, how there is a long history of black people, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, W. Montague Cobb, uh, Marcus Garvey, the UNIA, black people who were doing the work to oppose the white supremacist medical practices and or just total denial of medical services to black people. Can you touch on that a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I want people to take up away from the book is that, uh, you know, when we think about the black freedom struggle, we need to understand that that struggle has always included health care, that medical 
that access to health care and medical care has always been part of what we understand as the black liberation or the black freedom struggle. And so um, what I try to do to set up the Black Panther story is to go back to kind of historical moments that are familiar to readers and sort of show in these moments how health care was important in these moments. And so part of what the history of white supremacy and racial discrimination has meant, you know, just, you know, globally, of course, but I'm, I'm writing specifically about the United States, is that, you know, access, you know, sort of moderating or being able to sort of give, uh, gatekeep, let's say is a better word, access to health care was one way in which um, medical racial discrimination proceeded. So what, you know, you could um, uh, sort of um, from slavery, right, where, where, where um, you know, slave masters could literally decide if one, if a slave lived or died based on whether or not they would allow them to have access to health care services to you know, the contemporary moment and, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, for example, when, you know, medical workers were allowed to leave the cities, usually in states of emergency, you know, emergency personnel, met health care professionals are not allowed to leave. And you, we literally had people left to die, not only in the streets of New Orleans, but in hospitals. We now know, you know, that people were literally left to die at Charity Hospital, and these were most, you know, predominantly black, poor black people. So, Throughout that trajectory, there's been moments of resistance. So I, you know, um, in the book, write about the early 20th century, and I write in particular, I'll just mention a few. You mentioned Du Bois, who I write about, and also Montague Cobb, who, um, the anthropologist at Howard University. I also write about the work of Marcus Garvey, um, which we don't often think about as being related to health, but each of these, you know, each of the important moments in the black protest tradition have been also important moments in the black healthcare activist tradition. So with regard to the Garvey movement, um, you know, I write about the, the black cross nurses. So your listeners, if they have any images in their mind of the Garvey movement, they will remember, you know, Garvey often did these um, magnificent sort of parades in which he and his um, officers in the UNIA would be dressed in kind of, you know, ceremonial military garb and also walking, often walking alongside them in these parades were um, women who were dressed all in white, had white, you know, head, um, uh, head coverings and were wearing white dresses. And this was the, the Black Cross Nurses Brigade. Um, and these nurses were, um, many of them, uh, some of them trained nurses, some of them who had more kind of holistic, you know, health aid, uh, holistic or, or sort of health aid skills. And their their job was sort of threefold. They were supposed to be um, uh, to tend to Garvey and members of the UNIA. They were the sort of health workers or the health care services for the members of the UNIA organization. Again, remembering that, you know, in the 20s and 30s and places even like Harlem where the UNIA um, Garvey was often based, um, you couldn't, you know, black people couldn't necessarily just go to a hospital and get health care. Um, and it was less common in that time for people to go to hospitals more generally. If you were going to a hospital, it was because you were going to die, as my grandmother used to say. On the other hand, they were meant to, you know, be the sort of health care infrastructure if Garvey were to be successful with his Back to Africa plan. So part of what Garvey was putting in place um, in the various chapters of the UNIA organization was a nation state in waiting. You know, he was putting together the various aspects, you know, teachers, 
um, nurses, doctors, uh, you know, uh, engineers, the various things that you would need to create a society, an African society um, were uh, the Black Star Line and the Black to Africa plan to have been, uh, you know, a full success. And then closer to home, the Black Cross nurses were a critique of the racist health profession in the United States. So um, black women were often discriminated um, were often discriminated against, and this discrimination included excluding them from being able to attend nursing school, uh, nursing schools, and they were oft also excluded from uh, the Red Cross, which were so women would black women would sign up to volunteer for the Red Cross um, uh, and to serve their country in that capacity, but there was racial discrimination in the Red Cross, and so calling the um, the, the UNIA healthcare cadre, the Black Cross nurses, was, of course, black, you know, a symbol of Africa and of black people, but the Black Cross was also, a, you know, a, a reaction to, in some ways, the fact that these um, sisters were excluded from the Red Cross nurses. So that's one example of the way in which black communities have had to um, have responded to medical discrimination, and also exa an example of how the tradition, the long, long tradition of African-American health activism has been hiding in plain sight in places that we think we know a lot about. And so part of what, um, you know, the Garvey story is like we think we know a lot about the Garvey story, but we don't, you know, but if you look closer, you see there's health activism there. Um, actually, uh, for this other work I'm talking, I've work, been working on, on genetic genealogy testing, gave me the occasion uh, about 18 months ago to meet Julius Garvey, who is the son of Marcus Garvey, who um, is uh, in his 70s, and he is a, a retired cardiac surgeon who lives in New York City on Long Island. And um, it was just a thrill to meet Mr. Garvey, and he told me that I was telling him about the Black Panther book, and he told me that, in fact, there is still a group of Black Cross nurses that operate in Belize. So that's one example, that, and that legacy continues. Um, closer to the time of the Black Panther Party was um, the health activism that took place during the Freedom Struggle, struggle uh, Freedom Summer struggles, um, in uh, in the 1960, uh, I think four, um, in uh, the South. And so, uh, you know, part of what's um, again thinking visually, part of the, our visual legacy of the Civil Rights Movement is, of course, images of um, African American activists uh, who've come from outside of the South and also indigenous. Uh, blacks who were living in, you know, these southern towns getting sort of, you know, uh, uh, sprayed down with water hoses, getting bitten by police dogs, getting bludgeoned by, you know, uh, police force, the police, uh, wait, the white racist um, police system, members of the police force um, in various cities in the south. And, you know, given the context of Jim Crow, Jim Crow wasn't only about uh, you know, lunch counters and, uh, you know, where one could sit on the bus. It was it was through and through Southern societies in particular, although we know that there were Jim Crow practices throughout the United States. And these practices also included health care. Um, and again, it was, you know, this has always been the case, but we don't talk about the role of Jim Crow in health care. And so when these people were being injured um, in their fight to have uh, to be treated as full citizens in the country of their birth, although they didn't, you know, black communities didn't necessarily choose to have been brought here. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, they didn't have access to health care, and so part of the Freedom Summer um, struggle, for example, 
um, becomes uh, a health activist struggle when members of uh, what becomes the medical arm of the civil rights movement of an organization called the Medical Committee for Human Rights um, come down um, and work alongside the activists uh, to do health care services. So and, and initially, um, and these include people like Alvin Poussaint, who is the um, uh, Harvard-based uh, psychiatrist, um, who was then, I think, a psychiatry resident, um, would go down to um, you know, uh, the Mississippi Delta and other places, and they were initially there to treat the activists, um, but they would get into these southern cities and towns and see that there was no health care for the local black communities or very little care, um, or that the care was completely um, racially segregated. And so it became the case that um, part of what was going on during Freedom Summer, during the um, the you know Montgomery March, during all of these campaigns was there were people providing health care and there was a network of kind of health care activists being built in the modern civil uh, civil rights movement struggle. And these folks would build clinics um, and, you know, they would sometimes uh, work with community-based healers and they would sometimes train uh, community-based uh, health care workers to do basic kind of health care. And that sort of network of people um, would work with the Black Panther Party, some would be members of the party, some would just work in solidarity with them uh, to set up their clinics. As I said, very well trained. <laughs> Dr. Alondra Nelson, uh, and a lot of that info that she just gave, really all of it is in the book, Body and Soul. Um, can you kind of share, I want to read a little bit and get you to talk about how this health aspect countering racism became a more like, explicit aspect uh, of what the Black Panther Party was involved in. Uh, this is on page uh, 60 uh, in the chapter from self-defense uh -huh. uh, to self-determination, uh, where you write, in the 1970s, for example, there were numerous controversies involving poor women of color who received shoddy care or authoritarian treatment or both at teaching hospitals as well unnecessary and often as well unnecessary and often coercive hysterectomies were performed on women of color at teaching hospitals during this time the black panther the black panther party paper the black panther was replete with accounts of the pitiable and at times fatal health care doled out to the party rank and file and members of the local community at both teaching and public hospitals. As Panther volunteer Mary Branch expressed, we were battling a lot of things. Doctors told women that if they removed part of the uterus, they could still have a baby. We were fighting the partial hysterectomy myth and sterilization attempts. Thus, black activists' demands for community control of health care facilities was also a call to change an often harrowing, disrespectful, and unaccountable culture of medical practice. Uh, this is on page 60 again. Can you kind of touch on how this became a more explicit aspect of what the Black Panther Party was about? Yes. Well, it starts out, I mean, there's, again, you know, it, it, it's it's always there if we look for it. So um, I was reminded recently uh, of, um, this is in uh, the, the writer Joan Didion's book, 
where she's writing about the 1960s. The book is called The White Album, and so is the essay. And she reminds me, uh, I was reminded recently of um, this uh, testimony of uh, a nurse at uh, an Oakland hospital in 1967. Uh, this is after Huey Newton is um, involved in a shootout with police in Oakland in October 1967, about a year after the party's been founded. And um, he is, an officer is killed, and, and uh, Huey Newton is shot in the stomach. And, uh, and and is then arrested uh, and charged with murder, and he's um, eventually acquitted, and the, the Free Huey campaign revolves around uh, this incident. Um, but what's um, interesting in, this, in the testimony that this nurse provides about Newton is, is that, you know, he comes into this hospital. It's a Kaiser-affiliated uh, hospital in Oakland, and he says, you know, I've been shot and I need medical care. And the first thing this nurse says to him is, well, are you, she says, are you a Kaiser, meaning are you a member of the Kaiser, you know, uh, insurance uh, network? And he says, you know, yes. And she says, well, okay, then I need to see your card. And he's basically like, you know, listen, lady, don't bother me about my card. I'm bleeding. I've been shot. You know, you know I need, and she says, well, I can't do anything until I see your, see your card. I need you to fill out this paperwork. And he says, you know, listen, I really, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I need help here. I'm in pain. And again and again in this testimony, this nurse says, or this this hospital administrator says, he didn't seem to be in any quote unquote acute distress to me. So I was demanding to see his paperwork. So the idea that you know a black person could come into an emergency room and be shot in the stomach and be bleeding, um, but not be deemed to be in any kind of acute distress, quote unquote by the nurse that is seeing this person really goes to the core of partly why the Black Panther Party would become involved in health activism. I mean, here is Huey Newton, right, you know, in 1967, um, you know, before they get fully involved in creating their clinics and these sorts of things, having to deal with things that people are still dealing with today. You know, you can go to the hospital and whether or not you have insurance, if you don't, uh, you know, you can still be mistreated at the hospital. So I think the Panther health activism is really partly beginning uh, to emerge um, in, in the very experiences of the members of the party, right? Their own experiences that, uh, you know, are illustrative of the larger experience. And, you know, imagine Huey Newton. He was, you know, a college student. He was educated. He was well-read, you know, so, and he understood his, you know, obviously they knew what their rights were as citizens. I mean, the party really begins with um, he and Bobby Seale, uh, you know, sitting down and being like, these are our rights. We can carry arms. We can defend our communities against police brutality. So he would have been well aware as a card-carrying member of, Cal of, Ki of the Kaiser Health Insurance Network what his rights were. Um, and yet they were still treated this way. And if Huey Newton is treated this way, imagine how, you know, lesser educated, poor, black, less resourced people in Oakland were being treated at this same hospital. So on the one hand, it emerges out of, I think, these very kind of personal situations, or like what um, Dr. Marie Branch, uh, who would work with the party on their LA clinic, the quote that you read, and her talking about these sort of partial hysterectomies, um, and the fact that women were being coerced into, uh, you know, by, by uh, kind of racist doctors into, um, you know, giving up their reproductive rights and their reproductive power. Um, so these very personal stories are part of it, but it's also the case that you know the founding document, the party's 10-point platform, from the very beginning, from October 1966, was committed to social justice issues. 
So the founding docs 10-point platform um, talks about, you know, being committed to, you know, ensuring land and peace and, you know, health and, not health, but, um, you know, um, well-being and clothing and food for local communities. Um, and uh, so this was always social welfare and social programs were always part of what the Black Panther Party was involved in. Um, so it was always there, but then it comes to be heightened, I think, for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is that, you know, effectively uh, within the first kind of two years of the party's founding, um, people are dying. The police, you know, COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program that the FBI and G. Edgar Hoover was doing is in full uh, it's uh, in full form, and you know uh, they are targeting the Black Panther Party, and they make no bones about it. You know, you know Hoover is making explicit statements about, you know, the he, him really considering the Black Panther Party to effectively be, you know, public enemy number one, and both the federal police authorities like the FBI and local police departments are really going after the party, um, and lots of armed con armed conflicts ensue, and it's also the case that. You know, raids go on, like you know the the sort of tragic story of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark in Chicago, in which people are just shot dead in their beds. And so the party, I think, makes also a strategic decision that kind of emerges out of their their already founding commitment to social programs um, to uh, shift emphasis from uh, you know from uh, defending um, uh, local communities. Um, by, with guns, although it was well within their rights, um, to working, w focusing a bit more on the social programs and the health activists, activism becomes a part of this. So by 1969, 1970, as the party is really just expanding, um, you have uh, all, if, if, if a group of people, you know, in a city and, and uh, somewhere in the U.S. want to ally themselves with the Black Panther Party, want to become a chapter, um, by 69, they have to have a free breakfast for children's program, and they also have to have a health clinic. Um, we know a little bit more about the free breakfast for children program. People at least who know even just a little bit about the party have heard from that, about that, but people are less likely to have heard um, about the fact that, uh, uh, or to, to know about the fact that clinics were often also mandated for all of the chapters. Um, and so, you know, the origins really are about sort of the local needs of local communities. It's about the experiences of people like Huey Newton. It's about the observations of Marie Branch, who at the time was a, a nursing professor, an assistant professor of nursing at UCLA, who was seeing, um, you know, a black woman who was seeing black women uh, being having their health care compromised and actually having, you know, being um, sort of coerced or, you know. Um, oppressed such that they're being made to do things to their body or things are being done to their body against their will. So those are some of the, the sort of origins of the party's um, health activism. And it's also the case that, you know, their health activism emerges out of the things that they were reading, out of the philosophers and the political role models that were important to the party. So these include, and I write at length about uh, France Fanon, um, uh, Mao Zedong and uh, Che Guevara. Um, and these figures are interesting. And again, you know, in each of the chapters of the book, at least in the first two chapters, I try to go back and sort of say, this is what we think we know about the party. And even accounting for what you think you know, I'm going to show you things that you know that, that you haven't thought about, you know, given what you think you know. So I think if you ask anybody who has, has no, you know, has a fairly 
um, general sense of the party. You know, they you, they probably would know that the party were avid readers of the works of Fanon, of uh, the works of Mao Zedong, and they might know about the role of, of Mao's Little Red Book in the founding of the party, and they might even know that the party was, you know, part of their political education classes, including included reading the works of Shea. Um, but they wouldn't know that each of these political figures or political role models brought to the party a particular type of health politics. So, um, you know, one of the first things to note is that both Fanon and Shea were medical doctors um, and that we don't often think about their revolutionary politics as, if not emerging from, as, as being in conversation with their social roles as physicians. And so for, for Fanon, this meant that a text like The Wretched of the Earth which is typically linked to the Black Panther Party vis-a-vis -vis Fanon's, um, you know, sort of demand and observation that, you know, revolutionary struggle would require violence and that, you know, free, you know, true sort of independence from racial oppression may well require sort of, you know, um, forms of violence. Um, so, but part of this formative text, The Wretched of the Earth, was also an, uh, a, a sort of meditation, and particularly in the chapter four of that text, and your readers can go back and look at that chapter. Maybe they hadn't paid enough attention to it previously. That's about how medicine operates as a role, as, you know, as a tool, can operate as a tool of racial discrimination uh, or colonial discrimination in forms, you know, in, in societies that are, um, are unequal or based on, on in, in Fanon's case on colonial societies. You know, he was writing about um, colonial Algeria, which at the time was um, being colonized by the French. And so here you see, you know, Fanon saying, uh, you know, people come to me or people suffer from various forms of physical ailments or mental ailments, but that these ailments may have well to do, if not everything to do, with the uh, you know, whether or not they live fundamentally under uh, conditions of racial oppression. And he links racial oppression uh, to this. And the Black Panther Party would more, you know, following this line, would link um, health care and well-being to, you know, uh, access to, um, you know, resources. Um, you know, they would understand that if a society was fundamentally um, uh, driven by racial oppression and economic injustice that this really mitigated against people's ability to be fully healthy. Um, and so we need to really, with regard to uh, the role that his writing played um, in influencing the Black Panther Party, I think fundamentally rethink Fanon. Um, it's also the case that uh, Fanon writes in great detail about um, uh, about healthcare and uh, another book of his that was often read by the Black Panthers called A Dying uh, Colonialism, or in the 60s it was called Studies in a Dying Colonialism. Um, with regard to, uh, you know, Mao, we think often about uh, the Little Red Book. So all of the memoirs and any of the kind of narratives we have about the founding of the party talk about how the Black Panther Party, when they were founded in Oakland in the fall of 1966, raised funds by selling uh, copies of Mao's Little Red Book, which was a set of sort of slogans and aphorisms, these sort of revolutionary ideas, inspirational sayings, aphorisms, and these sorts of things. Um, and it, so with, with the Little Red Book selling mostly on the, often on the Berkeley campus 
and there, when they got the, the Black Panther newsletter going, um, you know, this was the sort of primary fundraising engine for the party. But it was also the case that the, the, the Black Panther clinics in which not only black members of the rank and file, some of whom had formal medical training and some of whom did not, um, in addition to medical doctors, health professionals, uh, you know, nurses and, and students in the health professions who volunteered with the party, they also um, encouraged members of the community, lay people who didn't have health training, to learn how to do basic health care in the clinics. And as I suggest in the book, we can trace this directly to the Barefoot Doctor program um, in uh, Maoist China in which, you know, um, you know Mao was... Uh, you know, directing sort of urban doctors who had formal medical training to go and work in the countryside. And in the countryside, he was saying, you know, peasants, the proletariat, the brothers on the block, as the Panthers might call them, could learn how to do medical, you know, could have basic medical skills. They could do healing practices, right? That, that, that health care didn't need to be sort of gatekept kept or sort of shielded behind um, uh, you know, professionalization and uh, um, and this sort of myst you know mystification. It was really about the demystification of healthcare. So um, you know, just you know, to summarize that, I think that we can, in the same way that we can go back to um, the Garvey's UNIA and see an early model of African American health activism that I think we need to put the Black Panther health activism in the genea and a genealogy of. We can also sort of revisit. Um, Mao and Shea and Fanon um, and think about the role that they played in the sort of formation of the Black Panther Party's ideas about health activism. Wow. Context of white supremacy. Um, that was, um, I, for me, very key point uh, in reading your book. And I have read Fanon. Uh, he's comes up pretty regularly on the program, uh, but not thinking uh, Fanon, Che Guevara, these are physicians, uh, and thinking, wow, the impact that physicians are having on how people think about racism. Uh, and uh, you talk about in the book recontextualizing the way people think about disease and health uh, in a system of racism. Um, even for me, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, are you familiar with her work, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing? Yes, been a long time since I've since I've I've read it, but yes. Okay, uh, she third generation physician, uh, and it just made me think. Wow, again, physicians having it seems an acute understanding of racism, white supremacy, and the influence that physicians are having on how people think about racism and health, uh, and the link between the two. Very important point. Yeah. Um, I want to double check, see if uh, my co-host Justice, if she has some questions. I'll give out the number in case listeners, okay. if you all have uh, questions you want to ask uh, Dr. Nelson, the number to dial is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-9. Uh, if you dial that line, just press star six. If you have questions for folks on the talk shoe line, it's star eight. Uh, let's see here. Justice, if you have questions for Dr. Nelson, your line should be open. Please proceed. Greetings, uh, Dr. Nelson. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Justice. Greetings to you as well. Um, 
why were you interested in studying about the Black Panther about the Black Panther Party? Um, you know, the Black Panther Party are, I think, inherently just interesting. I mean, you know, they're, uh, you know, to to wrap my mind around, particularly as a young person, um, you know, what it must have been like to be 18, 19, 20, to be that bold, to be that brave, um, to have, you know, I, I marvel at, you know, I, I marvel at the people who were in the, the sort of southern campaigns and then the civil modern civil rights movement. But, you know, and I marvel as well at the Black Panther Party, who were young people uh, who were just brave and who had um, a big vision of another, the possibility of another world, you know. Um, You know, uh, uh, and and I I guess I wanted to understand that because I think, you know, if I'm being honest, I wasn't that brave at 18. Um, And uh, so, you know, I really wanted to, to really think about who were these people and, under what conditions did these kinds of, you know, brave, uh, you know, freedom fighters uh, get created, and what, what what were they thinking about the world, and how did they see the world? So that was certainly part of it. That had always been, I'd always been very interested um, in, uh, you know, black activism, black freedom activism, more generally. More specifically, um, I was trying to to think about, um, you know, the sort of growing discourse around racial health disparities in American society um, and, you know, trying to think about, uh, you know, how could black communities sort of mobilize, you know, what happened to all of that, you know, mobilizing sort of power and energy from the 60s and 70s, um, and, and could we harness some of that around, you know, health care issues. So that's where I, I got started in thinking about the, this book in particular. Um, what was the most common uh, sickness for black people in the 1960s uh, and the 1970s? Oh, that's a difficult question. I'm t- I'd have to make a guess. I think it was probably, you know, similar to the common illnesses now. I mean, the common illnesses around among African Americans tend to be things like diabetes, heart disease, um, you know, the kind of chronic illnesses that we face today. Um, I do uh, write in the book about um, a disease that was not um, the most common, but that sort of disproportionately affects um, African Americans in the book uh, that the Black Panther Party was involved in, which is uh, sickle cell anemia disease. Um, And this is a a genetic disease um, that had been been one of the most, probably the most um, studied genetic disease that's been studied by, um, you know, medical researchers. It was discovered in in 1910, and people have been working on it ever since. You know, people like Linus Pauling worked on sickle cell anemia. Um, And by the time you get to, uh, you know, the late 1960s and early 70s, where the Panthers are um, in the heyday of their work, uh, you know, very little is known about this disease. So it's, you know, predominates among black people, but very few black people know about it. Physicians don't know about it. The medical community um, is not really doing a lot to raise awareness around the disease. Um, and the Black Panther Party, um, members of the party uh, come across or brought to their attention an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that really identifies the funding disparities um, between uh, 
sickle cell anemia disease and other genetic diseases that affect uh, different communities disproportionately that, you know, so diseases like a d genetic disease like Tay-Sachs that's more likely to occur amongst Ashkenazi Jewish communities and a dis and, uh, genetic disease like cystic fibrosis, which is um, more likely to occur among European Americans. These diseases were getting considerable, on the one hand, uh, state support, you know, they were getting like NIH research money, um, but on the other hand, they were also getting their local, their communities were mobilizing around philanthropy to raise money for the diseases. Um, and black communities were not uh, doing the same around sickle cell anemia in the same way. And so the Black Panther parties start this um, two-part campaign, sickle cell anemia campaign. On the one hand, they're engaged in um, just spreading the word and raising awareness about the disease. And their raising awareness about the disease would include them just including, you know, um, really um, technical um, but clearly stated uh, technical details about what the disease was and the state of treatment for the disease and the percentage of people in the black community who might be carriers for it or who might actually have the, who might be carriers for sickle cell trait or might have the disease itself. Um, and in this capacity, they would do things like um, appear on the Mike Douglas Show, which was a widely watched, very popular um, television show uh, that uh, was um, was on the air in the 1970s, I think probably through the early 1980s. And the Mike Douglas show was, um, uh, you know, for your viewers who are, who are a bit younger, um, was very widely watched and it was also a show uh, that, um, you know, that was on one of the major three networks. There was only three networks at the time and so you could really have um, a lot of people mobilized around watching one show at the same time, so you could have really sort of national conversations around a television show. And we would see a few years later that this would happen around the Roots miniseries, which was based on Alex Haley's um, book. So they, so Bobby Seale and two members of the party, a woman named Marsha Martin, who was the student body president of Mills College, and a gentleman named Don Williams, who both Afri these are all African Americans, who at the time was. Uh, um, a, a medical student at Stanford University um, appeared uh, on this show uh, on the week that uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are guest hosting. And so um, Seal and Martin and Williams talk about sickle cell anemia, the problem of sickle cell anemia, and are spreading the word using this national platform in which they could have talked about most anything, right, to spread the word about the Panthers' social welfare programs, their social um, community service uh, programs and sickle cell anemia in particular. So that was one part of the campaign was just public awareness, public outreach. Um, second part of the campaign was actually health care, uh, actually, excuse me, screening for sickle cell anemia trait or disease. Um, and this was pretty, um, this was quite amazing. I mean, it was at a time when we talk now about the gene for this or the gene for that, and, uh, you know, there's lots of shows about genetics and genealogy, and we've you know, decoded the human genome in uh, the early 2000s. But, you know, this was a time where people didn't talk in regular everyday conversation or you didn't see in the newspapers all the time anything about genetics. And here you had the Black Panther Party being involved in, you know, trying to screen for this genetic disease that was being neglected by the medical mainstream. And so they would uh, purchase, they would have donated um, these, uh, genetic screening tests called sickle decks, and they were uh, these were kind of mobile um, 
relatively inexpensive and pretty easy to use tests that had been introduced um, uh, fairly recently, you know, in the late 1960s, like sort of 65, 66. Um, and, and the Black Panthers used those tests, and then they would subsequently, the test could tell, uh, tell, tell somebody whether or not, uh, or tell the person, you know, the member of the party or the volunteer or the health professional, um, whether or not someone had, uh, was positive uh, for the sickle cell anemia trait, which is usually asymptomatic, um, or the disease, which um, uh, means that people have uh, problems with their joints and the circulation of oxygen in the blood and often die all too early a, a death. So you'll remember that, um, I think it was T-Boz, is it T-Boz from TLC, I think, um, has suffering, suffers from sickle cell anemia disease. Um, and so, uh, so you know, they, so this was a disease that the Black Panther Party identified as being, um, you know, not, you know, very, very common, but certainly affecting Black communities significantly, um, and worked to do something about at a, at a moment where uh, very few people knew anything about it, and uh, mainstream medicine wasn't doing anything about it. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I heard you talking about the uh, white hospital coats, and uh, I've uh, noticed at uh, hospitals or uh, doctors' uh, offices that the uh, coat uh, that the physicians would wa would have on would be white. Um, why are the coats white, uh, but normally not any other color? Actually, I mean, I think it it goes back to you know there was it's funny I should know this. Um, it, I, I'm not exactly sure. I suggest that it. I, I imagine that it has something to do with um, with you know hygiene in the sense that you know if you if there are you know if you're if there's dirt or something on a light colored coat you know it's easier to see than if the coat is is dark. But I'm not sure where that tradition comes from. I was. Um, talking to a graduate student uh, who's at Emory about this recently, and I can't remember what the origins of the, the color of the coat are. But, I mean, I think, you know, in the same way that um, the Black Cross nurses wore white uniforms, I think, uh, in the same way that the sisters often in the Nation of Islam would wear, you know, white kind of habits and um, long dresses, in the same way that um, you know, African American ushers at you know Baptist churches wear all white, in the same way that people who practice candomblé, uh, you know, wear all white. Um, you know, I think white has um, uh, certainly a kind of symbolic association with sort of cleanliness, right, or or hygiene or health, um, but also uh, um, with you know sense of I don't know what you want to call it, sort of, um, uh, you know, purity or, you know, uh, uh, with regard to sort of religious uh, movements. So that would just be a guess. <clears throat> were any white people in the uh, Black Panther Party uh, that were uh, significant in helping uh, with the health care program? Uh, if so, what did they do? Um, yes, actually, um, you know, I, I, these were not necessarily people who joined the party. So um, uh, there was um, 
there was the, the Black Panther Party actually created, I think it was called, um, oh gosh, uh, the, or it was something around the organi organization, part of the title was to end, the, maybe it was, oh geez, the Coalition to End Racism or something like this, and that was uh, a kind of affiliate of the Black Panther Party that, you know, white people could join. That was the way that they could sort of, quote unquote, join the party. Um, but they, were, they worked in solidarity with lots of um, white folks on the healthcare activism, um, partly because, you know, because of the history of medical discrimination and what that had meant for what the, what the health profession looked like racially. I mean, even now, very, you know, that there's a, um, African Americans are not, you know, proportionally repre represented in the health professions. Um, and in this moment, uh, you know, something like, I looked at the census figures, I think, from 1970. At this time, less than 5% of all doctors and nurses were of, of African descent, and so in the U.S. So that meant that basically you couldn't, you know, you couldn't create, as the Panthers were trying to do, a national network of health clinics run only with black doctors and nurses, right? Even if you were using volunteer labor and training lay people, you just didn't have enough people. So um, many of the doctors who would work on the Freedom Summer campaign and who were um, part of an organization called the Medical Committee for Human Rights um, would help to start and establish Panther clinics in various cities. So a physician named Quentin Young, who's been working, who's now in his 80s and who worked for, um, who's been working for many years to, um, to uh, as an activist for universal health care in the United States, helped, uh, worked with Fred Hampton and Mark Clark to establish the Chicago Clinic health clinic. Um, a gentleman named Terry Cooper, who I interviewed for my book, who was one of the early members of Critical Resistance, which is a prison abolition movement that you're, you would know about. Um, you know, he was a psychiatry intern at UCLA in the late 1960s, and he would help Erica Huggins, Bunchy Carter, Elaine Brown to start uh, Marie Branch um, to establish the, um, the, the, the Panther Health Clinic in South Central Los Angeles. Um, and so you had, and these are just a few examples, but you had sort of doctors, nurses, medical students, and the like um, collaborating, working in solidarity with the Panthers, both in, in, you know, in their clinics. And then you had folks who were in, in the Bay Area, for example, who were in the, the sort of um, white new left, like SDS, and who were working in places like the Berkeley Free Clinic or the Berkeley Women's Free Clinic, To They were helping to, um, uh, to for example, um, staff the, um, to stock, rather, the pharmacy at the Berkeley Clinic. Um, so, uh, so those are the types of things that people uh, were, were doing, uh, the, the sort of white allies of the party. Thank you for answering my questions, and um, I'm very glad for you to be on the program because, you know, you, well, because uh, I think that you shared uh, a lot of constructive information uh, on the Black uh, Panther Party um, and uh, on uh, Black Health, too. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the program. Thank you, Justice. It's great to talk to you. Gus, you can go ahead. Context of white supremacy. Um, I wanted to get Dr. Nelson to kind of share uh, some of her some of the information about these are specific things uh, the Black Panther Party was doing. Uh, and I think this kind of gets to what you were saying earlier about 
details that a lot of people don't know about the Black Panther Party and just thinking it was all get guns and shoot them up and off the pig, that sort of thing. Uh, this is on page uh, 89 uh, of Body and Soul and just about their efforts to increase the knowledge that black people had so that they could do things to improve their own health where they don't have to go and depend on white people. Uh, this is page 89. Uh, self-help was an important and transformative practice among feminist health radicals. The work of the women's health centers comprised not only rape counseling, birth control services, midwifery, and such self-help gynecology as cervical self-examination, but also obstetric procedures and, in some rare cases, abortions. The Panther Help Cadre also engaged in self-help reproductive health practices alongside local community members. Know your body, know thyself. Own your own speculum. Do your own examinations. Uh, Armor remembered. She continued, we practiced doing pap smears on each other, and then we sent them to the labs for results. This would prove a life-saving practice for Armour, who was able to detect her own cervical cancer at an early stage. Had I not been doing self-examination, I might not be here today. Uh, and then just in the same vein, uh, this is on page 110, same vein about self-help things that the Black Panther Party was in promoting. Uh, this is in response to the incident that we began with at the top of the program about the ambulance not coming to help uh, this young black male who eventually died uh, from not getting help. Uh, and this is uh, page 110. In response to the Winston-Salem Party initiated, in response to this incident, the Winston-Salem Party initiated a service to provide free medical transport. In 1971, the Panther Party repurposed a late model hearse as an ambulance. At the same time, party members took classes to become proficient in first aid, and some became certified emergency medical technicians as part of its People's Free Ambulance Service. This program began in 1972 using a donation from a deceased panther, Joseph Waddell, who died in prison under suspicious circumstances and had named the Winston-Salem Black Panther chapter as the beneficiary of his life insurance policy. The ambulance service was suspended briefly during this year when the vehicle's insurance premiums proved too high for the chapter to maintain. The formerly part-time service resumed in 1973 after the Panthers received $35,700 in financial backing from the National Episcopal Church. And they began serving the community 24 hours per day with a new ambulance obtained through these monies. With Malloy as its director and a staff of emergency medical technicians and drivers, the renamed Joseph Waddell People's Free Ambulance Service was in operation until 1977 when Malloy moved to Oakland, California, uh, page 110. And they actually you, uh, include uh, a picture uh, of this ambulance uh, that was uh, part of the Black Panther newspaper. Uh, and I just thought, I mean, incredible work that I don't think most people know about or even think about when they think of the Black Panther Party. Can you touch on a lot of the self-help work that they were doing? 
Yes, it's amazing. I mean, you know, one of the things I say about the, the, the clinics, and if we think about the ambulance services coming out of that Winston-Salem clinic, that the party really responded to, you know, local, what, what people needed, what they needed and what people in their communities needed. So in the case of um, the, you know, the first quote that Norma Armour, who, you know, she, I interviewed her on a few occasions, and she allowed me to share that very personal story about, um, you know, her being involved in self-help gynecology and, you know, being able to get early detection for cancer. And she said to me when I interviewed her, you know, I might not be here today if not for that. Um, and, um, you know, so and, and so all the ambulance, you know, the, the, um, all of the Black Panther's health activism was really a part of, uh, you know, the self-help and self-determination. And it was by necessity, right? But it wasn't, I think what's important to understand is that the Panther examples seem really extraordinary to us now, but you know, given the history of medical discrimination that I described, you know, earlier on in the book, you know, black communities um, by necessity had to do self-help, you know, um, medical care. So that's actually a tradition, and that's you know, it's a tradition that I want us to remember, and that for people today, uh, you know, we hear so many stories about, um, you know, African American members of African-American communities being, um, you know, mistrustful of the, of the doctor or hesitant to go to the doctor, these sorts of things, you know, I think it's important to remember that there was a time where people felt, you know, and some people still do, obviously, you know, really empowered about their health care and, um, you know, really in charge of their health care. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's part of what I think one of the legacies that the Panther story offers for us. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I think, you know, self-help was and self-determination was very much part of just the black power period more generally, and it was manifest in the Black Panther Party's um, health activism, both, you know, as I, as I suggested previously, because of this history of neglect and the neglect that members of the party and the communities that they worked with were dealing with, but also just because it was an ideal, it was a principle um, that was important to the activists, right, to, to do for self to the extent that they could, but notably working with, um, you know, interesting allies, you know. So in the case of the ambulance service, you have them working with the getting money from, you know, a bequeath from a supporter, former member, um, but also working with the Episcopal Church. Um, and their breakfast programs were often, as you probably, as you may know, um, often were uh, uh, um, carried out in sort of church kitchens and these sorts of things. So they had all sorts of um, interesting allies, and it was really like, you know, what, what, you know, what is it, whatever it takes to get it done, you know, whatever it takes to get the, the service done, and if that's who we'll align ourselves with. Wow. Can, you, uh, can you tell them about the freeze list that the party incorporated? Yes. So, um, yes. So I interviewed Elaine Brown for the book, and Elaine Brown told me about the freeze list. I, you know, I never wonder if people read that far because there's some juicy stuff in here. If you if you keep going, <laughs> um, so part of the the self help and the self determination that you were talking about, um, um, you referred to, also um, derived from the fact that the party, the the you know uh, chapters, they lived communally, right? And so. You know, they were, you know, cooking their meals together. They were raising their children together um, and these sorts of things. Um, you know, this was also, uh, you know, the time of, of free love and sort of sexual liberation. 
Um, and so how this often could manifest itself in party Black Panther communities was, um, you know, there would be a, a kind of circulation, if you will, of, um, of various forms of sexually transmitted diseases. So, uh, you know, if people were having various sexual partners and these sorts of things, um, or if, a, you know, a member of the party, you know, had a partner outside of the organization, and then was going to, you know, also had the partner inside of the party. Um, you know, you, you, there, there was a, if there, if there was an epidemic of a socially, of a sexually transmitted disease, it would sort of, you know, go through the ranks of the party, um, or it could potentially. And so the party created its own kind of quarantine system and its own effectively kind of public health system for within the the ranks of the party itself. And one of the ways it was manifest was. Um, when they had the school in Oakland, there was a, an outbreak of um, uh, uh, an infectious, um, I think, the bacterial disease called Shingella that sort of went through the school, and they had to sort of create a quarantine system in the school and get treatment for people until that uh, disease went away. And that was just an infectious kind of condition that, had, that wasn't a trans sexually transmitted disease. With regard to SDDs, the party created what was called the freeze list. So if, uh, you know, say a man, a brother in the party wanted to um, spend the evening with, um, you know, a sister in the party, um, she could or he could say, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm clean, I'm not, you know, I've been treated, I've had my whole course of antibiotics, and, you know, I no longer have anything that we need to worry about, and we can spend the evening together. Um, at which point he or she could call down to the clinic and see if he or she were on the freeze list. And so whoever was working in the clinic kind of carried around a list. And, you know, Elaine Brown told it much more colorfully than me, but, you know, she would say things, you know, you know, a sister would look at a brother and say, you know, not tonight, you, you know, honey, uh, you're on the freeze list. So the freeze list was, you know, had a, you know, um, contained information about where someone was in their course of antibiotics for a, a sexually transmitted disease and whether or not they were free to circulate um, uh, in a romantic sense in the community. <laughs> wow. Wow. It, open disclosure, if nothing else. I thought that was pretty funny, but also that's pretty constructive. I mean, just open disclosure yeah. can be helpful. I mean, you do not Absolutely. want to be circulating. That's something I think we could pick that back up, too, uh, just to promote, you yes. know, <laughs> exactly. healthy. Um, and again, another one that you would never know about, just thinking it's all guns and off the pig talk with the Black Panther Party. Um, you you already touched on, I guess I'll give out the number really quick, uh, 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND if you have questions for Dr. Alondra Nelson. Um you already touched on uh, sickle cell anemia and what uh, a big focus that became for the Black Panther Party. And really, it became a, a much larger, even beyond the Black Panther Party, where you had a lot of people, even trickling on out to Richard Nixon, uh, president at the time, mm -hmm. uh, who became focused mm -hmm. on yeah. this major uh, political issue. Uh, can you talk about that and how the Black Panther Party really tried to use that to recontextualize the way that we thought racism in black health? Absolutely, yes. I mean, the thing with this, the moment that the Black Panther Party are working on sickle cell anemia is um, is a really heady moment, and it becomes, it quickly goes from being, you know, the disease that nobody knows about to being the disease that 
everybody knows about and, and kind of is trying to get a piece of. And the Black Panther Party play a large role in bringing, you know, public consciousness, bringing sickle cell anemia into public consciousness. Um, but for the party, it was, you know, much like their, their health clinics, which were about, you know, getting people healthy, but they were also about, you know, creating a kind of infrastructure in the community. The sickle cell anemia campaign for them was about, you know, the public awareness and about the testing, but they understood the disease to be um, a larger political and social phenomenon, working very much in this tradition of Fanon. So they interpreted, you know, they kind of reinterpreted um, population genetics and um, um, and evolutionary genetics to to suggest that or to really underscore the fact that this had already been suggested in the literature that, you know, sickle cell anemia is a disease that predominates in black people because of the history of the slave trade. And, you know, in places where there is malaria, like in sub-Saharan Africa or West Africa, the quote-unquote Gold Coast, where um, many blacks were um, abducted and brought to the United States and to the Americas, Jamaica, and other places as slaves, to have the trait for sickle cell anemia is actually not not a bad thing. It's an adaptive thing, right? So it means that um, you know having the trait for sickle cell anemia helps one to um, to uh, helps us some some protection against um, contracting malaria. Um, so when you have for the Panthers, they were basically saying, you know, you brought us here, you've abducted us, and we're in this sort of strange kind of social uh, environmental context. And, you know, now uh, a trait and a condition that used to be uh, not, you know, not necessarily a bad thing is affecting us worse. And so, you know, they, were, they made a political reading of the, the sort of genetics or the evolutionary biology um, sort of case for or, or explanation for sickle cell anemia, and they also understood um, that the, the reason that the disease kind of was predominant um, in part was because there was, at least as they understood it, there was a kind of lack of will to do anything about it. There wasn't, um, you know, the state was free to, um, to neglect uh, any research or devoting any resources to the study and eradication of the disease, and in fact, um, in some instances in their newspaper, the Black Panther Party called, um, uh, you know, referred to the, the sort of prevalence and the neglect of sickle cell anemia as a case of black genocide, you know, that the state was explicitly um, invested in uh, the, the sort of demise of black people by just letting this disease go um, untreated and, and, you know, not devoting any resources to, um, uh, to its uh, um, eradication. Um, so that's, you know, that was part of the story. Um, but then other groups, you know, other people start to get involved um, on the get on the sickle cell anemia bandwagon. So um, on the one end, you have uh, African Americans who have less, far less radical politics than the Black Panther Party. So there's a, a quite, you know, kind of funny, but also in some ways bittersweet um, uh, account in the Black Panther newspaper where they talk about an R&B radio station uh, with the call letters W-I-L-D or WILD, um, you know, uh, trying to raise sickle cell anemia between, you know, songs, R&B songs, and not really taking seriously the fact that sickle cell anemia is not just, a, you know, a fundraising um, tactic. It's actually, you know, a serious political issue as well as being a medical issue. Um, and so they were critical of kind of, you know, both, you know, these kind of silly radio campaigns and also mainstream middle-class kind of bourgeois black philanthropies 
um, that were coming up around sickle cell anemia that were really divorced of thinking about black health, you know, and any kind of political or social uh, context, and or putting it in a frame um, that articulated um, uh, either, you know, racism or economic inequality. And then on the other end, you had the, the Nixon administration who, um, you know, understood that it wasn't good for, you know, uh, that African Americans as a voting block, you know, sort of strongly identified with sickle cell anemia. So everyone was, you know, trying to use sickle cell anemia as a quote-unquote black disease for, um, but for different kind of political and strategic ends. And for the Nixon administration, you know, it meant that they could, at a time where they were, um, you know, ramping up what we now know as the um, prison industrial context, uh, complex at a time when um, he was, the Nixon administration was um, reducing resources for social programs, they could uh, give some additional money, almost a tenfold increase in money into research for sickle cell anemia to bring it up to par with the funding that was being offered for other genetic diseases, and so this would result in the Sickle Cell Anemia Act of 1972. Um, but do nothing to address the sort of political or economic uh, critiques or the anti-racist critiques that the Black Panther Party had really couched their sickle cell anemia campaign in. So, you know, the, the sickle cell story with regard to the Panthers, as I analyze it, is somewhat a bittersweet one. So, on, you know, on the one hand, you, um, it, you know, it's, it's a, a story that and, a, and an issue that the Black Panther Party really helped to put on the national agenda. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it gets co-opted by, um, you know, both black and white, um, you know, parties who are who are not interested um, in the sort of the political um, the political radicalism of the party. Mm. Well, I wanted to share a little bit uh, from the book, um, just both not only in my view the work that the Black Panther Party uh, was doing, the, the medical work that they were doing to improve health for black people, very effective. And you can tell uh, it was, in my view, that is suggested that it was effective because the Pro program looked to erode funding uh, and support uh, these different medical programs. And you write about that. This is on page 146 of your book, Body and Soul. And you write, not coincidentally, what might be expressed as the diminishing of the party's ideological monopoly over public speaking, uh, excuse me, over public sickling discourse coincided with its evisceration at the hands of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO. With this concerted program of political repression, the FBI marshaled electronic surveillance, harassment, and a climate of paranoia to cripple the efforts of the organizations that had been identified as, quote-unquote, black hate groups. COINTELPRO began in the 1950s as a new phase of an existing program devoted to the surveillance of radicals. From August 1967 onward, it focused specifically on black radical activists and black nationalist organizations, including the party. By 1968, the party was such a cause of concern to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover that he used a public forum, the front page of the New York Times, to denounce the party as the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. A 1969 FBI directive revealed that Hoover even instructed Chicago and San Francisco Bay Area agents to, quote-unquote, 
eradicate the Panthers serve the people programs that he believed shed a positive light on the group. The FBI worked with local police and bureaucracies in its campaign to discredit the party. Party health clinics came under the scrutiny of local public health authorities allegedly concerned with unsanitary conditions and inadequate medical facilities. The Spurgeon Jake Winters uh, People's Free Medical Clinic in Chicago, for example, received a visit shortly after it opened in December 1969 from local health officials who threatened to close the clinic, charging numerous building and board of health violations. Former, former party chief of staff David Hilliard recalled that the party's free sickle cell anemia screening was crippled when the FBI urged Oakland police to arrest party members for making unlawful solicitations and planted news stories trying to discredit the program. Police harassment and raids frequently resulted in ransacking of party chapters, health facilities, during which supplies were damaged or destroyed and medical equipment was broken, as was the case at the Chicago and Los Angeles clinics. And I just for myself, knowing a little bit about Quintel Pro and reading material, I think that is another aspect that gets downplayed. People talk about what happened with Fred Hampton and a lot of the violent means uh, and cor corrupt means that uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI agents used uh, to attack the Panthers, but they don't talk about efforts that they made to shut down these clinics and make it difficult for them to operate and give service to black people in need. Um, I just also I wanted to share a little bit. This is on 150. Hopefully it'll encourage people to read the book on 150 where you talked about uh, President Nixon at the time uh, and his efforts to get on get in on the political talk around sickle cell anemia uh, where you write mm -hmm. for uh, for its part. The federal government sought to address a single angle on sickle cell anemia that might be understood as a representation representational standpoint. The Nixon administration hoped that its fiscal support for sickle cell anemia research would be seen as support for the black population writ large and, moreover, might translate into improved approval ratings, excuse me, improved approval ratings and votes, despite the fact that the president's other policies concurrently undermined the health of African-American communities in many other ways. As Tapper keenly observes, the administration was clearly more inclined to address the government's neglect of specific segments of the population through genetic screening, a relatively inexpensive strategy, than to work to transform the social and racial hierarchies that produced the neglect in the first place. Um, very important. And I think even myself, just to kind of consistently remind listeners that from time to time, you will have folks who will come out and maybe say something that sounds like they're in support of black people. Maybe they'll even do something that's in support of black people. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean they have black people's best interest at heart. Um, yeah, I'll rest. Did you want to comment on any of the sections I read or? No, I mean I think that just really, you know, sums it up and and I think um, you know, that you as you know in the, in the chapter you get a better sense of of how there were lots of different people sort of vying to be, you know, the ones who um got to to decide, you know, how and why sickle cell anemia was significant, right? Um there was a lot of kind of political symbolic work 
being done around um, the disease. And, uh, you know, and I think that those two passages really capture it well, both the intention of the Nixon um, program and, you know, of course, the, the, the way that um, and, and why, uh, you know, the FBI um, and uh, other police officials were really concerned about the sickle cell anemia campaign um, and the other health programs. I mean, one thing I will, you know, a couple things I, I guess I'd say, going back to the, the, the COINTELPRO point, um, you know, I was really surprised to find that it was, you know, we think about it being, um, uh, you know, only about sort of surveillance and, you know, guns and these sorts of things. But, you know, it really did uh, trickle down into the health work and to all of the work that the party was doing. Um, and even the the sort of, agent provocateur and the, the, the sort of um, climate of paranoia that, they, that the COINTELPOI program you, um, created by um, inserting sort of agent provocateurs into the party, you know, affected the health clinics. And the clinics and the health programs were, uh, you know, were surveilled, were policed, were raided, because in some ways they were um, the aspects of the party's work that was deemed far more dangerous than the guns, you know. I mean, that's what the COINTELPRO response suggests to us, or is, is equally as, deemed as equally as dangerous as the guns by the state. Um, but I would also say, and this goes to your, your point, Gus, that we don't really appreciate um, the, the sort of the insidiousness and the reach of COINTELPRO. I actually am increasingly starting to think, you know, having written this book, that part of the reason we don't know about the Black Panther Party's health politics, even people who um, you know, are on the left or admirers of the party or who are interested in the party is, you know, is a reflection of the success um, of COINTELPRO, right? So that Amen. Even, you know, it, it, that, that even for people who support the party, who admire the party, who are, you know, students, close students of the party, um, that the COINTELPRO was really successful in shaping our public narratives about what the party was, you know. And um, and I think it's you know that that's that's a sobering realization um, that uh, you know even for folks on on the left as we you know uh, um, and I don't want to assume the any the you know the political position of your readers uh, of your listeners but you know but even for for we folk um, that the that COINTELPRO succeeded in shaping what we think about the party you know those of us who know better who know more. Absolutely. That whew, phenomenal point. I could not agree more. Uh, I ugh, I couldn't say it better. Uh, I think we really underestimate uh, the damage that racists can do in shaping how we think about other black people who've attempted to work against racism. I, phenomenal point. I hope I hope that was not lost on listeners. Um, I definitely wanted to to also to get you to touch on the violence center. Uh, in California, because I think that is equally important. Uh, and I hope listeners are paying attention because I could easily see that sort of thing popping up again. Uh, in fact, I had a, a slight chuckle when I was reading about that because I will sometimes play one of the soundtracks from Clockwork Orange. And then people have asked, why are you playing that on the program? Uh, and I you know, gave my reasons, what have you. And now I will cite your book. When I play it again, I'll be like, go read Alondra Nelson's book, Body and Soul, and you'll know why I'm referencing Clockwork Orange. But can you talk a little bit about the violence? And summer? I think there's a Clockwork Orange reference in that chapter, unless I took that footnote out. But um, yeah, no, there is. I think that that's the reference that people use, uh, that some of the activists use. 
So, yeah, the Violence Center chapter, um, you know, I think you, you know, hopefully you got from um, the, the kind of uh, statement I began with talking about Huey Newton in the hospital and trying, you know, demanding that he, you know, his, his right to health care, um, and particularly as a health care you know, as somebody who um, was a member of the actual insurance network, you know, that Newton was, you know, some of these things were really personal for Huey Newton and for the party, in addition to being, you know, these large revolutionary, uh, these large campaigns with revolutionary aims. And the Violence Center is a little bit one of these stories as well. It was both a Panther campaign and a very successful one, and also something that had, you know, everything to do with Newton's own personal experience. So, in 1972, in the early 1970s, um, uh, UCLA, some, some uh, psych psychiatric, some psychologists and psychiatrists got together um, and wanted to and proposed uh, a center that was going to be called the Center for the Study and Reduction of Violence. And this was going to be a multidisciplinary scientific project at a time when you know, psychiatry and psychology were making, you know, were moving, making the move to become more quote-unquote scientific. So when, you know, um, psychiatry was being first becoming involved in neuroscience and these sorts of things, moving away from a kind of Freudian model to a more kind of, you know, bench science, your neuroscience model. And as part of this, um, some researchers at UCLA and uh, in particular this interesting um, colorful um, uh, director of the Neuropsychiatric Institute at UCLA, which still exists today, um, proposed to start this center. And some of the um, two of the scientists who were going to be involved in the center were um, these brain researchers who had written a minority report as part of the Kerner Commission report. And the Kerner Commission report was the um, you know, federal study that came out after the Watts Rebellion in Los Angeles in 1965 and was basically um, given the mandate, the members of the commission, to sort of answer the question, you know, why did this happen and how can we prevent this from happening again? And your reader, your listeners will know that um, a lot of the response to that question was things like, you know, people need jobs. They need to be treated with dignity in the workplace. They need to be treated with dignity, you know, when they're walking down the street. You know, was really identifying, even though there wasn't a kind of southern Jim Crow system in places like Los Angeles, that there was lots of racial oppression and that the rebellion was responding to um, the, the sort of, um, you know, oppressive conditions that people were, black people were dealing with in Los Angeles at the time. And there was a minority paper in the Kerner Commission report, and this was um, submitted by uh, these two brain researchers, and these scientists proposed um, that the reason why the Watts Rebellion occurred was that there might have been a small proportion of people who had diseased brains, that they had some sort of biological problem or some sort of biological propensity to violence that caused or sparked or catalyzed the Watts riots. So um, seven years later, when these scientists are on the proposal, along with other scientists who are proposing um, you know, all sorts of very questionable research projects, um, many of them focusing on um, black youth and black men in Los Angeles, um, it would come to the attention of Huey Newton and the Black Panther Party, and Newton in particular. And as I write um, in the, the book, you know, uh, the, the Newton understood and members of the party who had been incarcerated really understood that, 
you know, someone couldn't really truly give informed consent to participate in any of the studies that were being proposed by this violence, quote unquote, violence center um, when you're in conditions of, you know, unfreedom. So, you know, if someone, often it's the case that these people were being offered to participate in these trials, prisoners, for example, you know, when one more hour on the yard, a little extra food. And when you're incarcerated, you know, these sorts of things, you know, people are coerced. These are, these are coercive arrangements. And so um, one of the particular proposals um, was going to involve um, potentially the use of invasive brain surgery by these scientists who had hypothesized that it was the, the you know, black men's diseased brains that were the cause of rising rates of violence um, in American society. And Huey Newton would work with um, a kind of radical attorney named Fred Heastan, and Heastan uh, would put together a coalition, and so the Panthers would lead this coalition of leading sort of civil rights organizations. So it would include the NAACP Western Region Division, it would include Cesar Chavez's Farm Workers Organization, it would actually even include the National Organization for Women, and um, Heastan would go before the California State Legislature because this was a U University of California school and part of the funding for this violence center was supposed to come from the university, uh, you know, from the state of California um, and indeed had been, this violence center had been lauded and identified as um, by then Governor Ronald Reagan as part of his um, law and order platform. So Governor Reagan was really behind it. So it was no small feat uh, to um, try to get funding for this center uh, blocked at the California State Legislature when the governor of the state was named it in, as one of his um, primary goals in his State of the State address in that year. And um, so Heastan would basically, um, in the face of you know this kind of these kind of biological theories about why violence was occurring in American society would articulate um, another theory of violence, right? That drew on um, you know the Panthers, uh, um, uh, the Panthers um, engagement with Fanon's work and Fanon, who of course understood uh, violence as being um, you know something that happened, you know that colonial oppressors do. Um, and that would that in, and that is a re legitimate response, but it doesn't you know it doesn't come from it doesn't originate with right oppressed people necessarily. Um, they would also understand um, that uh, you know they, the Panthers had a kind of you know larger um, you know political historical understanding of violence, and um, the you know as I use a shorthand for this, um, H. Rat Brown's famous saying that. Uh, violence is as American as cherry pie. So the Panthers, um, in uh, the testimony to before the California State Legislature that was delivered by Fred Heastan was effectively saying, you know, violence doesn't have anything to do with our bodies and our brains, as you're trying to claim. Violence has to do with, uh, you know, police brutality in our neighborhoods. Violence has to do with the goal of American imperialism as it's being carried out in the Vietnam War in this moment. Violence has to do with, um, you know, the fact that, you know, white supremacists are, you know, beating down, um, you know, black people in the South, for example, if, if you recall that beautiful moment in the Black Power mixtape in which Angela Davis is, is says, you know, that she's being interviewed by the Swedish journalist, and she says, you want to ask me about violence? 
don't ask me about violence. I, you know, I grew up looking at violence. I saw my friends, my three, you know, my four friends, little girls like me, bombed in a church in Birmingham, Alabama, right? So that the legacy of white supremacy has been a legacy of violence. Um, and so the Panthers um, are not the only ones who are protesting this violence center. Lots of other people are involved, but they're certainly playing a very leading role, and they're one of the few parties to um, to testify um, and the you know vis-a-vis -vis their attorney at this at this um, at this hearing, um, and the state uh, blocks funding to the center, and the center is never brought to fruition. And so this is one of those moments, as I was referring to at the beginning, where you see um, black health activism not only being about getting access to health care resources, but also stopping medical abuse. Um, uh, and in this case, it was done before you know that these um, these um, research projects or research programs or clinical trials could even be set up. Um, and um, you know, I think it's um it's a fascinating story and it's an inspiring success story. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would just for context, very important for any listeners out there who might be thinking. Oh, well, that's just paranoia and thinking that Governor Reagan at the time or any of the folks involved with this proposed violence center that they would have it in for black people. Uh, as you touched on, they were going to use look at using prisoners uh, to participate in this program. And I think many folks, if you listen to this program, you should know disproportionate prison population, black and non-white people. Uh, and just the context of things that were happening at the time, this was early 70s. This is right at the same time when it becomes public what's been going on at Tuskegee for the past 40 years. Right. Uh, this is the right. same time uh, Henrietta Lacks and the abuse that she suffered. Uh, same time uh, the Holmberg prison experiments, Acres of Skin. If you have not, if folks don't know about that, you should get that book, Acres of Skin. Uh, oh, um, the author's name is for uh, escaping me at the moment. Acres of Skin. That's the title of the book. It's Alan Hornblum. Yes, yes. Thank you. What was going on there? Again, black people in incarceration in a weak position. It's difficult to give consent. And that's the exact same thing that they say in that book. When you're in greater confinement, prison, it is almost impossible to give informed consent because you're in a vulnerable state. If they're saying, hey, come participate in this study, we'll give you 100 bucks. We'll give you, you know, whatever supplies you need. We'll give you money so you can get food. You're there and you don't have help. You're going to be more than likely to take it. And that does not constitute informed consent. That constitutes being in a weak position where you can be exploited. And I suspect that is exactly what would have happened with the uh, with the violence center. And I would say be on the lookout because I could easily see that sort of thing popping up again, particularly if any sort of violence, if any riot breaks out around Trayvon Martin with the economy being the way it is, I could easily see something like that popping up again saying, hey, we need to really look at this violence and we've been studying DNA and what have you. Let's see if there are any connections. And I, I would just have to assume black people would not benefit from anything like that. Um, I I guess I will I'll ask because it seems or at least to me, it seems like there's a connection. You have a study or a report. I'll say you have a report. Uh, it's titled Genetic Genealogy Testing and the Pursuit of African Ancestry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, well, for the last, uh, I don't know, five or six years, as I was finishing the, the Black Panther research, um, I started 
became really interested in um, the introduction and now, you know, popularity of genetic ancestry tracing, um, which is widely used. It's widely popular. All sorts of people, you know, Irish Americans and, you know, Israelis and all sorts of people use genetic ancestry testing. Um, um, but I particularly was interested in Afri the use of the testing by African Americans, in part because of, you know, you mentioned the legacy of Tuskegee. So for me, initially, the question was, you know, why would African Americans, who are known to be, uh, you know, skeptical of medical research and science, you know, biomedical, bioscientific research, you know, put their, their uh, a DNA sample in an envelope and send it to a mysterious stranger, um, and, you know, for, you know, why, why would people even do this? Why are they interested? So part of the answer, of course, is about the legacy of slavery and the fact that African Americans, um, you, know, you know, relative to a lot of other um, uh, groups in the United States know, you know, significantly less about our ancestry, you know, um, because we just can't know what, what happened um, before the Middle Passage and that these tests offer you know, an ability to give us some information, um, potentially, or at least to make some inferences about, uh, you know, where our where we might have originally come from as you know um, individuals um, on the African continent, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, um, and uh, but I, you know, but for me, I guess conceptually or analytically. Um, Genetic ancestry testing is interesting, and this, again, going back to sort of where we started our conversation, because it's another instance for me in which African Americans are making use of, um, or it's an instance in which African Americans are making use of these new genetic techniques for potentially liberatory ends, right? So, um, you know, if the history of how these technologies have been used have been used for kind of white supremacist ends, um, you know, this represents a new moment. And so I guess the question, and I still don't, I can't say that I know the answer to this question, I'm still thinking this through, is whether, you know, the ability of these tests to provide some information about um, genetic testing, um, you know, is worth the risk of, you know, ending up perhaps in, you know, databases you don't want to be in, or, you know, is it a capitulation to, um, you know, kind of biologically essentialist and, and therefore, you know, kind of racist ideas about, you know, black bodies and black people. So, you know, I'm still trying to suss that out, but I am very, very interested in that, that article um, about the genetic ancestry testing and the pursuit of African ancestry was the, the you know, first attempt to sort of grapple at what is a larger book project that I'm finishing right now, which is about, um, how African Americans are using um, genetic ancestry testing in kind of black political projects. And so, um, you know, how has this interest in um, genetic ancestry been propelled into different kind of political and social uses in black cultural politics? And so in this book that I'm working on, I look at, um, for example, just to give you one example, um, this, uh, there's a, um, been a, a class action suit for reparations for slavery um, that originated in 2002, and that sort of wound its way in and out of the courts for a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing here is that um, at one point, uh, one of the d dismissals that the court, uh, you know, uh, that an appellate court sort of hands down says, well, you know, you, I think there's seven or eight people who are members of the class in the class action, 
people of African descent, the court says, well, you know, you can't really prove to the court to any kind of satisfaction that you are, you know, descendant from slaves, that you are, um, you know, descendants from people who would have been, you know, insured by Lloyds of London or transported by, you know, trains owned by GSX or, you know, the various companies, these large companies that still exist today that were being sued in the class action suit. And basically what the court wants is like for, you know, black people to be able to trace, the, you know, to trace sort of me, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, my great-great-great-grandmother, you know, back to slavery and then be able to put that person on a GSX, you know, train or um, put that person on, you know, the insurance role of Lloyds of London or these sorts of things, which is a really difficult and high threshold to meet. So the um, people in the class action suit said, you know what, we're going to, there's this new technology, this was in 2004, these genetic ancestry tests, and we're going to use these tests to um, to prove to the court, right? So and this is a civil court, it's not a criminal court, so we've been using DNA and you know criminal court settings for a long time, mostly to convict folks, but you know uh, more more recently to exonerate folks with uh, the success of the the um, uh, innocence project. Um, and so you know they introduced their evidence. So one person's linked to Sierra Leone, one person's inferred to be um, from the Gambia, and you know they they submit this evidence to the court. And in the end, the court says, well, you know this you still aren't really proving a kind of, you know, direct sort of line or a direct kind of, you know, line of, you know, both capital and a kind of genealogical line because the test can't give you, you know, anything that looks like a kind of genealogical pedigree. Um, but I'm very interested, um, even though this um, endeavor seems to have stalled, um, uh, you know, in the, the that in African-American communities, African-Americans, African-descended people, Turning to these technologies um, to uh, to try to get some you know liberatory ends, and you know it raises the question that beautiful question that vexing difficult question hard to answer question that Audre Lorde left with us you know which is whether or not you know the master's tools can dismantle the master's house um, and you know I think it's uh, you know I don't I don't know I don't know yet with genetics and I'm trying to 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 um, as I'm finishing this book, uh, trying to, you know, come down on one side or another in, in the next few months. <laughs> wow. Well, I am uh, I am a shameless fan of Dorothy Roberts, uh, Northwestern yes, University Yes, well, you professor. should be. <laughs> she's, uh, she's been on the program. I am, too. I, I saw her in your book. I suspected yeah. that you would be. Um, her book, uh, Fatal Invention, she was on the broadcast yes. in October, and she yes. also talks about this whole uh, trend now, I guess, of, of promoting it and Dr. Henry Louis Gates uh, being on mm -hmm. CNN. I think he's about to do another special and how mm -hmm. uh, it seems like this is being encouraged. And she said yeah. that right there is enough to make her suspicious of why are you trying to get all these data banks. You have no idea what these mega corporations are going to be doing with this information and she just, in my view, she expressed a lot of sensible suspicion about voluntarily submitting your genetic material to people who might not have the best intent, particularly given the history and ongoing legacy of white supremacy racism. And uh, 
yeah, I just wanted to get you because it does seem like this is something that is it's on television, and they got all these programs where they got Spike Lee and <laughs> everyone, all these popular and famous people uh, participating. That it would encourage you to think this is this is a good thing. This is in your best interest. Yeah, well, it's you know, I mean, I I think you know, you know, um, Professor Roberts, I think you know, comes down. You know, I don't feel quite comfortable coming down as hard as she does on saying, you know, I totally agree. You don't want, we should have a lot of healthy skepticism about corporate interests, about interests who do not have our best interests at heart having these databases. But I guess I also think that that explanation or that position, um, you know, means that we need to assume that all of the black consumers who are using these tests just don't know enough information, right? Just don't know about the history of science and white supremacy. Just don't know about the history of, you know, forensic databases, right? And I think, you know, I think we know something. So that means that people are doing it, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I, I'm, I'm not quite comfortable with an explanation that suggests that, um, you know, that, black communities are just not smart enough, or if they really knew, they wouldn't do it. I think people know. I think a lot of people know a lot about what they're doing. And because I've worked with genealogists, you know, these are people who, you know, who read scientific papers and who, like, will go and, you know, you know, get genetics textbooks and try to understand these things. And so I guess I'm just trying to understand, you know, what we do with, black people's agency, how we, you know, what do we, I mean, I don't know, I mean, one read of the reparations case, of course, could be, you know, that's the kind of last gasp of um, of desperation and a moment where, you know, political po- possibilities for um, political justice have been really shut down. I think that's one read. But I also think that, you know, these people who, um, were involved in the class action suit who would go on to create a petition to nominate this black geneticist Rick Kittles for the Nobel Prize really think that they're doing something else, you know. And so that's, I'm a little bit, um, I totally, you know, buy and appreciate Professor Roberts' argument. I think to a certain extent she's 100% right, but I'm also trying to make sense of this other piece, you know what I mean? So I think she's right about that one piece. But I'm also trying to make sense of, you know, how do we understand, um, you know, these reparations activists being involved in using these tests in a way that's not just like, oh, they just don't understand, you know. They just, you know, if anybody understands the history of white supremacy and racial discrimination in this country, it's people from the Organization of Tribal Unity, reparations activists. You know what I mean? That. It is. A, I, I will definitely tell you, it is a tough one. I know uh, a lot of black people who they have a similar sentiment to what you expressed earlier about wanting to get that information and feeling as though their legacy was stolen and trying mm-hmm. to, to want to retrace all that. And I, I totally understand that. It makes perfect sense. I, I get the logic of that. I, I, I'll say it succinctly. I'm reminded of Malcolm X's quote when he says, anything that makes white people happy, I get suspicious. And anything <laughs> I see white people, I mean, they got this on PBS and CNN. I mean, it's to me, it's just staggering uh, that it's yes. promoted so heavily. I just can't imagine how this is going to end up well for black people. Like I could just, and when I take into account 
the DNA data banks are swelling. When I read that yes, information in Fable Invention, I mean, it made me cringe uh, that just stuff I didn't even know about where enforcement officers in certain areas, if you get arrested, bang, we can take your DNA, you have nothing to say about it, and we can hold it indefinitely. We could, it could be Henrietta Lacks multiplied yep. infinitely. I mean, yes, 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 yes. Think about that, listeners. Come to your own conclusions. Um, <laughs> it's a complicated <laughs> one, though. I think it's not, you know, yeah. Uh, the book again, Body and Soul. I'm kind of checking out. I don't see any hands, so I assume folks are, are all good. They've just been joined listening to the program. Uh, the website, again, is alondranelson.com. alondranelson.com. And uh, definitely be on the lookout for the new book, the title uh, Reconciliation Projects Race, Politics, and the Social Life of DNA. Uh, we will be looking forward. Perhaps we can get you back on the program after you've given it some more thought. We've seen some more to see how yeah, all this will I'm play out in the future. Um, be happy to. Right on. Thank you so much for sharing some of your uh, Monday evening with us. It was really enjoyable to read the book. I hope people will pick up a copy, Body and Soul, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and will highly recommend it. Uh, please take an excellent care of yourself and continue the much-needed scholarship. Oh, thank you very much, Gus. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. For sure. We will be in contact, Dr. Nelson. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. Good to you. Good evening. Context of white supremacy. Um, man, I, I was <laughs> – when I was reading the book, I was like, oh, man, we talked about that with Dorothy Roberts. Dorothy Roberts, for folks, if you don't – if you are not familiar with Dorothy Roberts' work – Phenomenal scholarship. As I said, she's been on the program three times. Uh, Fatal Invention, that's her most recent book, unless I'm misinformed, but it came out last year, so I think that's the most recent one. But she also did uh, Killing the Black Body. Excellent. I think every every black female on the planet should read that. Really, every black person, period. Males should read it too. Um, Killing the Black Body, phenomenal work. Killing the Black Body, we discussed that. She was on the program in August of 2009. And her second book, I'm forgetting the title. Oh, Broken Bonds. Broken Bonds. I got it. Broken Bonds. And it's all about racism, white supremacy in the foster care system. Just extremely important work. I would recommend get all three of the books. They are vitally important. She uses the term white supremacy. It will exponentially increase your understanding of racism, white supremacy. But that the genetic testing thing, man, you should think about it. Come to your own conclusions think about it, but she, she spends, I think she has a whole chapter in Fatal Invention where she talks about that. Real important. I just saw Dr. Henry Lewis Gates. I just saw where they're doing another special and they had some other really prominent people that were going to be getting their, their testing done. And uh, I, I'm suspicious. <laughs> I will uh, go with the Malcolm X quote again. Anything that makes white people happy, I am suspicious. Um, I will see if I can check my uh, internet kind of froze up. I'm not sure what the uh, what the problem is. I will uh, give it a quick check to see if anyone has anything they would like to share before we wrap things up. While I'm doing so, again, we will be back tomorrow, uh, and that would be Tuesday, uh, May 1st. Tuesday, May 1st, uh, we'll be back. Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson, uh, returning to the context of white supremacy. He has not been on the program since October of 2011, 
uh, the last time he was with us, fabricated social disorder. That was his term, fabricated social disorder. Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson, he said, what I suspect is going to happen is the encouragement of some sort of disorganized violent response to get black people out angry and ready to participate in some form of counterviolence for the purpose, the sole purpose of giving racist man, racist woman, and racist child an excuse to come down hard on large numbers of black people. That was exactly what he said October of 2011. You can go back and listen to the program. He will be with us tomorrow. We will get the update uh, to see what he thinks about everything that's been going down, the whole Trayvon Martin situation and everything else that's been popping off 2012. Uh, one of our listeners, he, uh, I think it was a male. If it was a female, my apologies, but I think it was a male. Uh, he put it on my Facebook page. He had an image, and it said the people who want a riot are the people who are dressed for such an occasion. And it had a photograph of all these enforcement officers in riot gear. I am telling you, no one is more prepared than white people for a quote-unquote riot. They've been reporting for the past four years. They got their guns, record numbers, ammunition. They are looking for an opportunity. I would encourage folks to go back and listen to the broadcast when Mr. Fuller was on the program in September of 2011. He was on the program the day after the execution of Troy Davis, September 2011, and he said that uh, they were looking, white people were looking for an opportunity to try out their new weapons and new guns. Uh, during, this was during the 60s he was talking about. He said this was, I think, during the rioting that took place when Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered, and he said that white people told him, he said a white person that he worked with told him, we were wishing we were hoping that black people would lose their mind for a moment and come over here and try and mess with white people. We were up in the trees. We had our scopes, our sniper rifles. We were ready to murder some black people. He said a white person told him this. It's on the program in the archives, September 2011. He was on twice that month. So you got to get the one that is, I think it's September 22nd. It's the day after uh, or two days. It was two days after the execution of Troy Davis, so that should be the 23rd. I think Troy Davis was murdered on the 21st, so it should be September 23rd. But, uh, yeah, listen to that program. That could be homework for tomorrow. Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson will be visiting with us. The program will be 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I do have my switchboard up now, but I don't see any uh, hands, so I assume everybody is good to go. We will be back 600th broadcast, 600th broadcast, context of white supremacy. Justice's website is justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. Uh, you can invest in the cows. Uh, the link should be uh, in the chat room. You can just visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Dot com. The address again, racism-notes.blogspot.com. We'll be back tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Context of White Supremacy, signing out. Thank you all for tuning in.